Whether you're an entrepreneur, event planner, political organizer, video producer, cattle farmer, fashion designer, architect, real estate agent, or magazine editor, Airtable can help you create your way. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com slash Founders Project. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexa Von Tobel, and I'm your host for Inks the Founders Project. So what's the Founders Project? Well, it is a podcast where we take the absolute best founders, innovators, and inventive minds in the country, and we learn more about them. What makes them tick? How do they get out of bed in the morning? What is driving their everyday success and keeping them motivated through their failures? And this week, I have one of my favorite people, Danny Meyer. I admire him so much, the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. The company has created some of the most iconic restaurants in the world, from Union Square Cafe to Gramercy Tavern to the obvious one and only Shake Shack. Union Square Hospitality Group holds a remarkable 28 James Beard Awards. I don't even know how that's possible, Danny, and a reputation for a distinctive style of hospitality. Danny himself has been recognized for his tremendous achievements, including being named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. Welcome, Danny. We're so excited to have you. I'm really grateful to be here, Alexa. (laughs) Um, So where to begin? I'm such a foodie. I get just so excited. For those of us who aren't familiar with Union Square Hospitality Group, just give us, in your own words, what is the company? Well, <laughs> I think about it all the time. We are a collection of a bunch of different eating and drinking brands that really all fall under one category, which we call enlightened hospitality. And the idea is that whether we're a barbecue restaurant like Blue Smoke or a jazz club like Jazz Standard or a Michelin-starred restaurant like Gramercy Tavern or The Modern or an Italian restaurant like Maialino or Marta, or Union Square Cafe. Where I love to eat at all of them. Keep the going. Goal, well, I, I could keep going, but I'm not going to right now. Or we have we have a big event company called Union Square Events that does everything from the Robin Hood dinner for 4,000 people to cooking meals for first class on Delta Airlines and even food at ballparks and, and arenas. But whatever we do, as broad of a portfolio as that may seem, it's really just one business, and that is the business of finding different ways to apply what we believe is the most potent business principle out there, which is hospitality. And I could have said it a lot more quickly. Union Square Hospitality Group is a Petri dish, inside of which are a bunch of brands, and every now and then one of them may grow up and decide to move out of the house. That's what happened with Shake Shack, and we're kind of excited about that. That it's I I will say I mean every time I'm in an airport and I see the lines I'm I like pinch myself because I'm so proud I'm like that is just so cool it really is and the food is incredible um, so before we even dive into your theory on business and everything that you've learned uh, so if I rewind you wanted at some point to become a lawyer you even took your LSAT what was the aha moment because for so many people. Finding what you love is really difficult, and I think we all tend to want to go on these paths where we're doing things that we think are expected of us. For you to go from being, I'm, I'm not going to become a lawyer, uh, to going into food, what was the moment? How did that become so clear? Yeah, well, first, Alexa, I have to just say what a privilege it is in life to actually have choices like 100%. that. There are so many people 100%. who do the thing they have to do because it's the only thing they could possibly be hired to yep. do. And I am just so grateful that I had the kind of education growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, and then um, liberal arts college, Trinity College in Hartford, where I was a poli-sci major, where 
What do you do with a poli sci major when you're done? Liberal arts teaches you how to think, but it doesn't necessarily act as a trade school. And what I found I was interested in after college was uh, really more connected to where I wanted to live than what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I just had this burning desire to spend a year of my life in New York City. And while I was there, I, I took a job that um, I got because my my late grandfather, my now late grandfather, had invested in this company called Checkpoint Systems, which was a electronic article surveillance system, kind of a fancy way of saying those little white plastic tags to stop shoplifters. Yep. And I got a $16,500 job um, as the assistant to the New York sales manager, and right at the right time for two reasons. The company had just come up with a pressure-sensitive label with a printed circuit. So in addition to selling to clothing stores where you stick that pin through it, uh, we could also sell to grocery stores, drug stores, anything you could put a sticker on that wow. would beep if you stole at supermarkets, the New York Public Library System. So that was lucky. The other lucky thing was is that the New York sales rep decamped for the competition within three months of my joining the company. They gave me the entire New York oh my region. <laughs> and for the next three years, I became the company's top salesperson. And I just kept plowing my uh, commissions, which were pretty big, especially since I had nobody to support but myself in my early 20s. Yep. I just kept plowing the commissions back into the company's stock, which was trading uh, over the counter. And it went from $2 to $12 while I was there. Wow. So anyway, to make a long story short, I decided I don't want to be catching shoplifters for a living. And I, I was <laughs> often in the bowels of department stores like Alexander's, where a lot of people don't know, but they actually have a clinker or what do you call it? A clink? A, a jail. A jail. <laughs> a jail in the basement. And I'd, I'd be, he did just call it jail. Clinker. Well, that I don't amazing. know. It's good news is I don't have a lot of experience <laughs> with them. But um, I knew I didn't want to do that. So now what do you do? So either going to, I guess the thing to do is either get a journalism degree because I like politics. Yep. Or get a law degree because I like politics. And my aha moment was literally on the, having taken the Stanley Kaplan class on the eve of taking my law at my LSAT, I was lucky enough to go out to dinner with my aunt and uncle, and my uncle got really mad at me for being grouchy. And I said, what's wrong? He goes, what's, what's, what's bothering you anyway? And I said, well, I have to take my LSATs tomorrow. And he said, well, of course you do. You want to be a lawyer? And I said, well, the problem is I don't. And he got so angry, and he said, do you not realize that you're going to be dead a hell of a lot longer than you're going to be alive? And I said, what are you getting at? And he said, well, why would you take the two minutes of being alive and wasted on something you don't want to do. And so he was the one who held up the mirror at that dinner the night before taking my LSATs and said, you got to do the only thing I've heard you talk about your whole life, which, which is food. And I had been in complete denial. I just had never thought that just because you like going out to eat, that that could that be a could legitimate be. career choice. That is so amazing. Uh, wow. Wow. Uh, we all need that conversation with the uncle to say, hey. Here's your passion. You may not see it, but the rest of us have seen it for a long and time. what are you doing? So then at 27, you opened your first restaurant. And walk us just, if you have to go back. So I started Learn Best when I was 24, um, which feels like a long time ago. I was an ago. old man at 27 <laughs> relative to you. Um, when you look back at those days, I just want to get a sense of how do you reminisce in your own head of your early days entering this new passion that you finally were taking your full life's you know, um, uh, effort and commitment to? Well, what I remember more than anything is that I was ignorant. I did not really understand the business. And I was also not able to 
see what could potentially go wrong with it. And it almost didn't matter. And there again, as grateful as I feel for having gotten a good education growing up, I also feel grateful for the fact that what I didn't know didn't hurt me. In, a, in, in other words, I think that if you're a real entrepreneur, you do not know how to see what could potentially go wrong because you so believe in the shit. The, Amen. The, the fun of sharing this idea with other people that you only see what could work. And to this day, Alexa, I don't, I don't know why Union Square Cafe did not go out of business. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the word budget. I didn't know anything about the word inventory. I just kept buying every wine that sounded that tasted good and putting it in the cellar without any sense of where that cash otherwise <laughs> might have been spent. Oh, I just have no idea how we stayed in business. We couldn't get drinks to to flow from the bar the first month we were open. People were pounding their hands on the table and leaving the restaurant because we couldn't get food out of the kitchen. So all I know is this. In a weird way, as bad as we were in those early days at doing the basic things that any good restaurant should be able to do, the thing that overcame all of those mistakes was now something that I know to be hospitality, which is we would have done anything to make it right. We would have done anything to make sure that however you felt when you came in and however worse we made you feel based on our performance, we were going to fix it. And I think people really found that that they they liked going to a place that was really trying hard. And then ultimately, you know, really bad reviews started to become better reviews. And I, I learned the expectation game pretty quickly, which is every time we got a good review, you had to actually perform even better than that. Yep. And then each time you did perform better, you would get a better review. And then it became a real virtuous cycle. And we finally got to the point where – you know, after three years, we earned a three-star review in the New York Times, which was a big deal for wow. for a casual restaurant back then. When you rewind, so you're sitting with your wife, you're having a glass of wine, and you're thinking about your life, and you go back to that 20, you know, 7, 1985 uh, first restaurant, um, what goes through your head? Is it like the good old days, or are you like, oh, my God, I was so scared? Or what do you remember? Just well, yeah, personally. truly the only time I was ever scared was the night that one of our guests punched me in the face. <laughs> um, he was he was drunk and I was trying to cut him off from drinking. And um, I don't necessarily need to recount that entire story, but I was scared that night. The other time I remember being scared was when I knew that the New York Times was going to give us our first ever review, oh, God. which was about – about 100 days after we opened. And uh, the way I knew I was scared is that I developed a case of Bell's palsy. And half okay. of my face went numb. Um, I couldn't blink one of my eyes, couldn't flare one of my nostrils. And I came to figure this out because I could only taste wine on half my tongue. Oh, my gosh. And the scary part for anyone who's ever had Bell's palsy is that um, you don't know – whether you're going to be the 20% or the 80%. In 80% of the cases, it goes away, but not for two weeks. So for two weeks, you're sitting there going, is this my future or is this these two weeks? And uh, and it was all due to nerves. I was petrified that we were going to get plastered with a scarlet letter uh, for not being very good. 
Oh my gosh. These are the stories, by the way. This is the Founders Project DNA, which is I went to the hospital with a kidney infection um, from only drinking basically coffee for two and a half days, which, by the way, is not healthy for anybody. Um, early days of blurring best, of just working myself literally to the bone and just getting really sick. And that 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 is what founders do. You just you you do what you have you to do. Do whatever you have to do. Yep. And you you also pay yourself what you can afford to pay yourself. And now that you know, I'm I'm recalling, I was paying myself forty thousand dollars a year for the first five years. And true, I owned the equity in the business, but I didn't know if that was ever going to be worth anything. And again, lucky because I had put away my commissions from being a salesman, and I could afford to do that. Yep. But I wasn't taking things out of the business. And that, I think, is, you know, if you're putting your blood, sweat, tears, and heart, and soul, and just everything into it and taking out very little, and you get some lucky breaks along the way, it's it's not a bad formula. It's not a bad formula. Okay, so now let's fast forward. Um, you have Enlightened Hospitality Investment, um, where you are now doing some of the investing in you know the the past Danny. Um, so you just announced an investment in Dig In. You also have invested in Joe Coffee and Tender Greens. And one of the things we really just wanted to know is. What, when you look at a business, what has to stand out for you? Like, what is that gut feeling that, or what? what is the formula you're looking for in future entrepreneurs? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in a couple others that yeah, we're proud know. of as well. Yep. Resi, uh, Gather, which we're just announcing now, which is a fantastic marketplace for booking private events, which most, most people who want to have a private party in a restaurant or an event space don't know who has the private room. And you got to make a bunch of phone calls, so this is a great way to take that to the public. We invested in a company called Salt and Straw, which makes fantastic ice cream based in Portland, Oregon, and it's a great customer experience. And we invested in a company called Goldbelly, which is a marketplace for iconic food brands. So say you grew up in another city or went to college somewhere, there's probably some food that you had at that point in your life where you have a deep emotional connection. Goldbelly has probably curated it and, and can have it on your doorstep anywhere in America the very next morning. So what they all that have is in, amazing. It, it's oh a great company, um, and I urge your listeners to go to Goldbelly. Um, what all these businesses have in common, Alexa, is that they're run by people, um, A, who we would have hired if only we had had a job. They're run by people generally who had an idea we wish we had come up with if only we had had the ingenuity and I think probably most importantly, they're people who prioritize their stakeholders in the exact same way we try to at Union Square Hospitality Group, which is actually creating a virtuous cycle by placing your own employees first ahead of your guests, which is a little counterintuitive, followed by your community, followed by your suppliers, followed by your investors. And so the notion of kind of turning Milton Friedman upside down on his head and say, yep. guess what? The investor is fifth. Um we find is a great way to build a sustainable, uh, profitable future. Because in a virtuous cycle, if one good thing keeps leading to something better, you would never want to put your investor first because you wouldn't be doing the best you can for them. Um, and we've come to learn that the happiest employees in any business are the employees whose investors are really happy. So it, it works. And, and so we did this. We set up this fund. Um, because we really wanted to reinforce for our own team that two things. We really believe in this concept we call enlightened hospitality. And B, we have the humility to know that there's not enough hours in the day and enough brain cells for us 
to have all the best ideas, but we're pretty Amen. good at pretty good at handicapping it in other people. That's amazing. Um, how long have you guys been actively investing? Two years at this point. That's wonderful. So everybody out there listening, uh, if you have a really great idea in the food space that matches what Danny just talked about, uh, reach out. Uh, He definitely wants to hear your business plan. I I will say this, though, that it's an important thing, and I'm grateful for what you just said. But we are um, – and this this gets to your point. I am at the core a a seed entrepreneur. Every restaurant business we've ever opened – started as an idea. Yep. And yet our fund, Enlightened Hospitality Investments, is is a much later stage fund. So we're investing, we're trying to write checks, uh, let's say 10, 15, $20 million check to a company that would still represent a minority interest in their bill, uh, business. So it's later kind stage. of like a, later, a stage. later stage, but we definitely like to get to know people early. Yep. Uh, even if we can't invest till later, we definitely want to get to know great people early. Absolutely. And with that, we'll be right back after this. In 1885, inventor and entrepreneur Sarah E. Good was the first African-American woman to be granted a patent by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for her invention of a folding cabinet bed. Today, that bed is better known as the Murphy bed. This creative breakthrough is brought to you by Airtable. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com slash Founders Project. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Alexa Montobel, your host. You have thought so much about people. And if we think about your hiring playbook, what do you look for? I think every entrepreneur out there, every listener, anyone who reads Inc., um, you know, you're trying to figure out how do you – your your biggest asset is your people. Your biggest expense is your people. So you've got to get it right, and you've clearly spent decades thinking about this. What's your playbook? And it's such a good question because you're right. Your biggest asset when you get it right is your people, and, and your biggest deficit when you get it wrong is your people. Yep. And, if, and what we've learned is that when you, when you do an ace's job of hiring – uh, it's so much more fun for everybody else to come to work. And the worst mistake we ever make is not the underwhelming performer. It's the whelming performer. It's the one that's never good enough to take you to the championship and never quite bad enough to get fired. And what they do, unfortunately, then is to set a very low ceiling uh, for performance and excellence in the entire company, and it really hurts the culture. So what we're looking for is in, in employees is exactly what employers are looking for in us as employers. We want to get 100 on our test. And we're very clear that the way we get 100 is to find somebody who uh, is 49 parts performance and 51 parts hospitality, by which we mean um, if you're the best pasta cook in the world, but you're not a great person to have on the team, you get a 49 on your test. So you could get a perfect cook and that would be a failing 49 grade unless they were also great for who they are. And one of the ways I look at it is this. You know, in baseball, which I'm a big baseball fan, baseball measures every statistic available in the world. I don't even understand half of them <laughs> for throwing and, and batting and fielding and you name it. Um, it. They measure everything, but they're missing a big deal, which for a sport that measures everything in a nine-inning game, a typical baseball player is on the field for nine innings, yep. and that same baseball player is sitting on the bench in the dugout for nine innings. 
we're trying to hire somebody on our team who is awesome when they're on the field, but equally awesome for who they are in the dugout because who you are on the team is either going to bring out better performance in the rest of your team or or quite the opposite is true. Yep. Uh, is there an interview question that you've just learned over time tell or two that has that really tells you something that you're like you're like that is the, what is your question what's the question you like to ask well I actually have borrowed both of these from colleagues of mine I'm I'm pretty good at understanding what my gifts are not <laughs> but uh, there's two amazing questions that I've learned from one colleague Richard Corain and and another uh, another colleague as well but the first one is this. What would you say is people's greatest misperception about you? And what's amazing about that question is that it forces me two-dimensionally or maybe three-dimensionally to understand your own self-awareness. Because, number one, it tells me that you're aware of what other people perceive you to be, but it also allows me to hear who you really are. Just that one question. And you can learn a lot about someone. The other question is a really bizarre one, but um, I found it to be so helpful. And this question is, name something that happened, or tell me something that happened in your life before you were 12 years old that has forever changed who you are as a person. We all have that thing. And it can be uncomfortable for someone maybe for, you know, 15, 20 seconds to think. But uh, And then you just tell them, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And what's great about it is that you can really get someone to, to reveal to themselves and to you something that they now believe they are, but also what the root of it was. And it can get emotional sometimes, but if you ask it in a really supportive kind of way, because there's not a wrong answer – it also helps to build trust, assuming that you end up hiring this person. And I think that a lot of times in interviews, we don't, we don't remember that we're very possibly going to be working with this person. And so you're already setting the stage for what kind of relationship you're going to have. And, you know, it's kind of like in politics, people put so much thought into winning the election, but they don't think as much about what it's going to be like to govern afterwards. And I think the way you run your campaign which is what we're doing when we're hiring someone, says a lot about how it's going to feel to work with that person afterwards. First of all, what I, what I love about the depth of your thinking on this is what you're really asking people to tell you is who are you truly to your core, not, not, not the, you know, who are you going to show up? What are the moments that have made the fabric of you? And one of the questions that um, we, I've, I've also stolen from somebody else is on a scale from one to 10, how lucky are you? And oh, I what love the that. answer is, if someone says a nine or a 10, you, they almost just prove to you that they're a positive person. Uh, if someone's like, I'm a five, you almost get a really clear sense that they're a more negative person. And I just think... And if they give you a three, they, they have a lot of hubris. And, and it, really, it really begins to tell you kind of how people show up in terms of um, positivity, which I also think is a really helpful mm -hmm. thing, especially because being an entrepreneur can be brutal at times. So optimism is the first emotional skill we look for in somebody. And, you know, it's uh, we do have we have named six emotional skills that oh, I'm uh, dying to hear these. You have well, to tell and, us. and the thing is, is that it's I've never found it possible to teach anybody 
emotional skills. I have found it possible to celebrate those emotional skills and reward those emotional skills. But I, in the way that we can teach someone how properly to decant a bottle of wine or any technical skill, the six emotional skills that, that always show up in someone who has what we call a high HQ, high hospitality quotient, are number one, kind optimism. We look, somebody's eyes don't know how to lie. So if someone has kind eyes, that's a damn good start. And I do believe that people who thrive at hospitality, and by the way, uh, listeners, hospitality is not just for restaurants and hotels. Amen. It's for every Everything. business. It truly is. It, it either feels, you can either make it feel better to work here or to do business with us or not. So, and that's what hospitality is. But so we look for kind optimism. And the reason that I think optimism, first of all, hope is optimism. Hope is actually the root of the word hospitality. It's a belief that your actions can actually make the world a better place. And that, I think, is a great expression of accountability, too. Number two is curiosity. We're looking for people who look at every day as an opportunity to learn something new and who do not look at themselves as being a finished product. Three, work ethic. Um, We can, as I said earlier, we can teach anyone how to do a job, but we can't necessarily teach you to care about doing that job as well as it can be done. Fourth, kind of an obvious one, is empathy, an awareness of how you make other people feel and a a desire to make other people feel better, ability to kind of walk in someone else's shoes at least uh, for that moment. And we believe that as much as the golden rule classically has always been do unto others as you would have others do unto you, the golden rule of hospitality is do unto others as you believe they would want done unto them. Very different. It sounds like it's the same thing, but it's putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And then the final two emotional skills we look for are self-awareness, the ability to understand your own personal weather report today. And that's not to say we're looking for a Stepford wife or husband who's always happy because no one is any more than I want to move to (laughs) Phoenix where it's only sunny and 72 with no humidity every day. But when you understand your own personal weather report, and you understand its impact on the team, because hospitality is a team sport, I think chances are much better that the whole team does a better job. And then finally, integrity. Someone who's got the judgment to do the right thing, even when no one else is looking, and even when it may not be in your own self-interest. So now you show me a great pasta cook, or a great bookkeeper, or a great maitre d' um, who's awesome at what they do, and... They're kind, optimistic, curious, great work ethic, highly empathetic, self-aware people with integrity. And I'll, I'll put my team against yours any day. Amen. Uh, I think that is what I think we just heard what makes you so successful. And it is your incredible thoughtfulness and how you bet on people uh, and how you move people around, too. I think you're incredibly loyal. You're known for being exceptionally loyal, um, which is when you absolutely love somebody that you work with, you keep them in the group, you keep them in the family. And I think we try. And you know what? You take any of us who takes our strength too far, it becomes a weakness. And sometimes. Someone who was great at a certain level or at a certain position, it may be time to let them go. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, sometimes it's selfish to try to keep to try someone to keep them on. Yep. who really should be growing elsewhere.
Um, so I want to jump to a question because you were talking a little bit. You're clearly a very soulful person. Um, and that's one of the things that when you get to sit in a room with you, it's easy to be around you. It is who you are, I think. So I heard about this concept, which is the MQ. So we all have IQ, we all have EQ, but MQ, it's the meaning quotient. What really feeds um, that third gear of yours or that deep soul of yours? What do you think is the MQ for you? What is, what is the thing where on a Sunday night when you're looking at your week, um, this is one of my favorite questions I like to interview people with, um, on a Sunday night when you're not stressed out about work, which we're all allowed to be stressed, right? It doesn't mean you don't love your job if on Sunday you're a little anxious. But if you're not on this particular Sunday and you're looking at the week ahead, what's going on? What is what is the week full of? What is the meaning quotient? And and how would you think about your own career now that you've been able to really drive so so much That's, success? It is a really good question. And for me, I, I think the the thing when I look at my schedule for the following week, there's there's always about three meetings I'm not looking forward to, and they're generally the kind of meetings that none of us loves, where you either have to make an unpleasant decision or just you know, a really, really, I, I kind of like the challenging decisions. I don't know who of us loves the unpleasant ones. Um, but the, the the meetings I look forward to that really hit my M quotient are anytime I get to be helping others on our team unleash their greater potential. And I think that as a leader, you're trying to get a bunch of people to do stuff that you think are priorities, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, teaching and being with really talented people and helping them to lead others. It, it's kind of you know the old servant leadership uh, way of doing business. Not that old, but I just love anything that we can do that proves that you can actually scale culture. That's the headline I would give it. You know, in our business, um, fast food certainly taught the whole world how you can scale systems. Right, Ray, yep. Ray Kroc was a genius at that. Um, I don't know that that they thought that much about scaling feeling. Like, you know, does it feel the same way to go to a restaurant in Moscow as it does in Malibu Beach or Manhattan? And that's what that's what I think creates the most meaning for me is, and it's probably why we have so many different restaurants, which is trying to prove that while they taste different and look different and hit different price points and have different, you know, smells and everything. What if they could all have a thumbprint where no matter which one of our restaurants you went to at whatever price point, you kind of said it feels the same. And I'm really, really excited about trying to prove that you can scale culture as you grow. Um, Well, if anyone's going to be able to do it, it's going to be you. If we think about just, again, you know, Shake Shack now has over 150 more uh, locations. Over 250. 250. Uh, now a publicly traded company. You have a portfolio, 28 James Beard Awards, running a venture fund, and and still being so hands-on. You're known for being really hands-on and even, you know, fixing a knife on a table while you're doing an interview. And um, it, it really is fun to see how much kind of personal effort you like to put in these things. You have also four children. If we think about your own productivity hacks, how do you make it work? What's the one or two things that you do to make your your own personal playbook thrive? 
Well, when you mentioned four children, the <laughs> biggest hack is having an awesome wife and uh, smart man. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, Audrey is a full-time actor, but she's also just a remarkable mom. And when I think about, you know, every night of my life as a kid, I was having dinner at the dinner table, and at least sixty percent of the time, or seventy percent of the time, both my parents were there at the dinner table. And when I think about my career as a restaurateur, especially in the early days when our kids were really young, I wasn't, I wasn't always at the dinner table. I'd always try to be there to read goodnight to you know at least two or three of the kids at that point. But I just want to say, if we're talking about, I, I don't know that Audrey would like to be called a hack, but, but that's, that's an amazing part of productivity because there had to be an understanding that this guy's out trying to build a business we're both trying to have have, have a great careers, family yeah. and have good kids with good values, and I just can't overstate that. But then the other thing I would say is is um, I think there's a way to be hands-on in the sense that you are interested and that you're willing to spend time with your people and look people in the eye and recognize people and call people by their name. It's hard. We've got Leaving Shake Shack aside, as you just said, it's a separate company. It's over 6,500 employees. Wow. Unisquare Hospitality Group alone has close to 3,000 employees right now. And clearly, I can't remember everybody's name, but that doesn't mean that I can't find a moment to look people in the eye and smile and remember the last time I saw them, find opportunities to catch people doing things right. And most importantly, it's how do you delegate without abdicating? So... If you have the right leaders in place and you let them make choices on how to get there, even though they don't get to make a choice on the destination, that's my job, but let let really good people take other really good people to a place and then constantly reinforce that by catching people doing things right. It is so much more rewarding to catch people doing things right than to catch people doing things wrong then I think it really leverages me in a big, big way. If I have one bane that I would love to figure out that I haven't got a great hack for, it's email. And <laughs> I, I literally— My face just dropped as you said it. It, it, did. it Amen. did. I can't keep my nose above water. Um, and, you know, one of the downsides to being an accessible leader is that— You can't keep you, up. You can't necessarily— uh, it's hard to set limits for other people and make people feel like, well, how come every time I see the guy, he's asking about me. He remembers the last time we had a conversation, but I can't just email him with every question. And as we've grown our business, the number of emails has only exploded. So I've got to figure that one out somehow. I wish I had an answer for you. I, I, I need the same answer. So if anybody has it, we need it. Um Quick question. So if you need to be recharged, refueled, is it sleep, the gym, or fun with other people? Yes. Which, all? It, it, it's, all, it's all <laughs> the above. Look, I've learned, um, and somebody taught me this oh, probably seven or eight years ago, that the biggest fallacy is to think when you're looking for balance in your life, you often hear people say, I'm looking for a work-life balance, right? And that's a seesaw that never, ever evens out. And, and so it's a losing battle because work hasn't seen you quite enough. And life hasn't seen you quite enough. Yep. And so what somebody helped me with was understanding that the real balance that, that you can achieve, which doesn't care where it's happening, is it's a four-way balance between are you taking care of your body? 
You're taking care of your mind. You're taking care of your heart, your need to love and feel loved. And are you taking care of your spiritual needs, which is a human need to wonder about things that we Big cannot things. explain. Yep. And my hack there, which is great, is that at least two days a week, I will exercise with my wife or with someone in my family in nature. And then what happens is I'm taking care of my body. I'm taking care of my mind because I'm getting stuff off my mind. I love this. I'm taking care of my heart because I'm hanging out with someone I love. And nature is where I get my spiritual needs met because there's a whole lot of things that I find massively beautiful that I cannot explain. And so that is a, that's the best multitask in the world. People always ask me, Alexa, what's your work-life balance hack? And I, you know, I just had a third child, so I'm always juggling everything. And I say to people, and it really is a luxury, it's to love your job. When you love what you do, it's not like you're working and you figure out a way to do all the bending and all of the logistical gymnastics. Um, but to your point, it is actually, you know, it's a it, it's a luxury that a lot of people don't get to have. It, you're right um, about that. And if you truly love your job, you can get some of your love needs met needs at, met at work at work. Which is, I think, again, if you can, or at least find something that you love to do within your job, if you can. Um, okay, last few questions here. Um, the food industry is so fascinating, and so many things are happening in it, and you have been such an innovator in it. Let's just fast forward. If we fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, what are some of the things that you think are happening in food and hospitality that get you excited? What are the things on your radar? So the hospitality part is and has always been and always will be the same thing, which is human beings long to belong. They, they want to belong to something. And I think that wherever our industry goes, whatever food we're serving, however you're getting that food, whether it's in a restaurant or, you know, from somebody's bicycle that delivered it or whatever it happens to be, the successful experiences are the ones that are going to make you feel like you belong here. Because I think we're tribal creatures and Restaurants continue to provide that opportunity. Now, that said, um, I I think technology is something that was completely foreign to our industry till relatively recently. You know, cash registers and fax machines 25 years ago were in every re – that was technology. Now, it's everywhere. I would love to see um, a technology reasonably soon – uh, and I hope within five years adopted where when you're ready to leave a restaurant, you just get up and go. And you don't have to, you know, wonder where your waiter is with the bill. My guess is that tipping is going to slowly go away. We've already eliminated tipping in our restaurants. And so there's really no reason to waste that extra 10 or 15 minutes wondering where your waiter is, getting the bill, waiter leaves while you leave a tip, then comes back again. If we can make that 10 or 15 minutes go away and give that back to you where you put that power in your hand, that would be great. The other thing is how can we, how can we use technology to marry together people's desire for a hospitality experience, including the social experience that exists of going out? There's it's still the one thing that you can only do in a restaurant. You, you can't order food delivered and have a transporting experience social experience, but how can we marry together people's desire for hospitality and convenience at the same time? Right now, those two things live very, very separately from one another. So I think, you know, it's all well and good that in in the last two or three years, you can push a button on your remote control, also known as your smartphone, 
and get almost any food delivered to almost wherever you are. Um, but, you know, you don't have a server wearing a tuxedo with a candle ready to play music for you and, and deliver a crowd of people to keep you company at the same time. So we're going to always be looking for ways to have more hospitality when we have more convenience and more convenience when we have more hospitality. Do you think if you fast forward that huge, massive kitchens where you can perfect a recipe and a robot can cook it and it can show up to people's doors, is that far into the future? Is that never? No, no that's not far into the future. But um, as a matter of fact, it's already happening, as yep. you know. Yep. Um, there's trucks roving around making pizzas with robots. And that's fine. You know, if, if what you do is you basically eat to live, that's going to work out. But what if you live to eat, like people like me? What if you actually want the hug with the hummus? You know, yeah. <laughs> I, w- I want it all. I don't just want. I don't just a hug want, with the hummus. Yeah, that's I want it I all. I want a hug with the hummus. So th- it's that's what what I'm thinking about a lot. And you know, we're all hearing about the the kitchens where you know instead of look, we have a broken system in our industry, which is we're building expensive manufacturing plants in really expensive real estate with expensive showrooms. That's a restaurant. Yep. And if people increasingly are not going to restaurants but still want really good food, then obviously something's going to give. And we're going to find ways to leverage restaurant brands, existing restaurant brands, and say, great, if you really want to have a great bowl of pasta or a great pizza and you know the restaurant, like let's say you love the Cacio e Pepe at Maialino, and you want it on your doorstep at home, and you don't care that it came in a package, and you don't care that you're not out with friends in a restaurant, I guess I'd still like to do business with you. And I guess you probably don't care where, which kitchen that got made in, as long as it's Maialino's recipe, recipe, right? There are many restaurants that expand anyway, so why not have a kitchen that is proximate to someone who can deliver it to you really quickly? Yep. And we'll get this all figured out over time. But right now, there's a lot up in the air that no one quite understands. The delivery companies are not necessarily making money. They're charging the restaurants so much money at the same time that the restaurants aren't necessarily making money. I will say, as a consumer, this is a golden era to eat what you want. And you're really not paying the fair cost for it right now. Uh, You heard it from Danny. Um, If you had to give one young entrepreneur uh, founder advice, what's the one thing you would just say? Know yourself, know your own one. motivations, know your own passions, and make sure that that uh, you're in it for the right reasons. And it should be because you really believe that your idea solves a problem that if your solution did not exist for, the world would not be a better place. But if you really believe you've figured out something that you saw earlier than others and you've got a, a, a solution that's going to make my life better, do it. Swing big. What is the best meal memory? I'm sure you get this question all the time. I'm dying to know. Well, you know, the best meal is the one with the deepest emotional connection. And um, it's it was like birthday dinners growing up in St. Louis where I got to pick the menu. And it might have been barbecued ribs. It might have been fried chicken with macaroni and cheese and a banana layer cake. But it's... It, your favorite meal is not necessarily the quote-unquote best restaurant. It's the one that is associated with your best memories. 
Amen. Uh, Danny, thank you so much. Guys, you've uh, heard so much soulful wisdom today. Uh, Danny is an incredible entrepreneur and, as you can tell, has so many more swings uh, in his arsenal. So thank you so much for being here today, Danny. Amen to you. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye.